All right, so Ephesians 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 as we begin, so you can follow along as I read. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all, all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all maintain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." Let's pray as we, as we begin. Lord, this is, this is your word. No prophecy, no scripture was originated in the mind of, of human author, but each man wrote, each author wrote as they were carried along by the Spirit. And so as we read these verses in Ephesians 4, we recognize that this is your Spirit-breathed word to us. And so help us to receive it as from you, as the author. Lord, help us to um, live subject to this word. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, there's only three parts to this this passage. So so we're going to do all 16 verses, but, but after you've heard me read, hopefully you realize that would be a long sermon. There's a lot to deal with, especially as we look at verses 7 through 16. And so this week we're just going to work through verses 1 through 6. And so we're going to look at three parts of these first six verses. So in verse 1 we're going to see the exhortation. So Paul is, is exhorting them to something. So there's a, a command there in verse 1. Then we'll see in, in verses 2 and 3 the manner by which they are to carry out the command. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, thirdly, we'll see the, the basis for carrying out that command, or the motivation. Here's why they are to carry out the exhortation in the way that he called them to. Or, if it's easy to remember, maybe, uh, boys and girls, if you're taking notes, it it might be easy to think of the what, the how, and the why. The what, the how, and the why. So in verse 1, we see the what. In verses 2 through 3, we see the how. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see the why. So let's start there in verse 1, the exhortation, the what. What is Paul calling the Ephesians to? So there in verse 1, if you see it, it's not that complicated, is it? Paul is calling these Ephesians, these Christians, 
to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Do you see that right there? Verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so this is the main command. This is the exhortation. This is the imperative of this passage. Paul's concern is ethical. He wants them to live a certain way. And so we're going to see that Paul is calling them to action. But before we look at that, before we look at the specifics there, I want to kind of set the stage for, for this passage, the, what follows in these verses, but, but really what follows from verse 1 of chapter 4 to the end of the book. And so, so what happens here in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, this is the midpoint or the turning point of this letter. And so in chapter 4, Paul transitions. So all ver- chapters 1 through 3 are kind of part 1 of the epistle. And then beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, there's the second part. And as I've mentioned before, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all ethical commands. So Paul is going to command them to do things, to live certain ways, to, to not do certain things. And so it's all ethics. Do this. Live this way. And there are going to be all kinds of imperatives. And, but but what, what I want us to know about all of these imperatives is that, or commands. So when I say imperative, that's just, that's just another word for command. Okay, And so all these biblical commands come with a context. That is, they all assume prior biblical truths. And it's not just the case for here, but but in all of Scripture, every command has a context. All biblical imperatives are preceded by biblical indicatives or things that are true. And so, so whenever there's a command to do something, you can be sure that it's preceded by a declaration of what has already been done or what's true. And so there's a relationship between indicatives and imperatives that, that's helpful for understanding as we look at anywhere in Scripture. And so in other words, here in, in Ephesians 4, Paul is saying, become in your character and conduct, right? That's chapters 4 through 6. Become in your character and conduct what God's action in Christ has already made you to be. So that's chapters 1 through 3. Here's what God's done for you in Jesus. Here's what's already been accomplished for you. Therefore, live out this way, which is in accord with who you are. And so the indicatives precede the imperatives. Does that make sense? Hopefully I'll work this out more. So, so for instance, in Romans chapter 6, now, now this is just an example of this indicative-imperative relationship. Romans 6, verse 12, Paul says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. That's an imperative. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Now that command does not come to us out of nowhere. Right? Sometimes when, when we read commands, we just say, okay, just got to do it. Right? That misses the point that I'm trying to make is that there's, a, there's, there's something that happens. There's, a, there's an indicative that precedes the imperative. And so when Paul says, let not sin reign in your mortal body, that isn't a contextless command. Right? So what precedes that command in verse 12 is verses 1 through 11 where Paul's saying, hey, you've been united with Jesus. You've been united in a death like his, in a burial like his, in a resurrection like his. And in fact, you're united with him. So you're alive in Christ. That's what has already happened. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. And so that's the command, but it's based on what's already happened. He says in, there in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to it. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your body because Jesus died to free you from being enslaved to sin. Do you see how what God has done enables you to do what you're being called to? 
That's the indicative imperative relationship. Another common example would be that of the Ten Commandments. So even in the, in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, the Lord does not begin his interaction with Moses with the first commandment. Did you know that? In Exodus 20, verse 1, it doesn't say, hey, no other gods before me. Here's the rules. No, there's a context. And so in verse 1 of Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've delivered you. You're my people. Indicative. This is what's true. This is your reality now. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Don't make any carved images. Do you see what God has done for them? Their relationship with the Lord precedes what these commands are. And so he doesn't just say, hey, hey, here's the rules. Do them. He says, no, I've delivered you. I've saved you from slavery. And here's some commands that you should follow for your own good. Right? In the context of this relationship that we have, that I've initiated. And so, so these are just two examples of how this relationship works. And understanding this is helpful in establishing that no biblical command just drops out of the sky. No biblical command is ever detached from a specific context. Underneath all biblical commands or imperatives is the assumption that God has acted, that God has done something And so our ability to act comes from God's prior activity. I mean, it's it's like 1 John 4, 9. We love, why? Because he first loved. And so we hear a command to love, we don't say, okay, just got to love, I got to love. No, we say, since God has loved me, why wouldn't I love? Right? And so what God has done enables me to act, to carry out these commands. This is just a, a good principle to understand as you're reading through scripture, as you're reading through New Testament commands, because there's commands all over the place. But if you just see them as, as commands without a context, they're, they're burdensome. I can't do this. Why would I do this? And so the context makes all the difference in the world. And so here is Paul, chapters 4, 5, and 6, as he's calling these Christians to act, he's doing so in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Look at the grace that God's bestowed on you. You were dead, now you're alive. Look at God has chosen you. God is, God's power is at work in you. Therefore, do this. Walk this way. So, so that's kind of where we get, in, that's where we start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul's exhortation is grounded in all that's come before. So what does he call them to? What's his exhortation? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so all of the calling, what have they been called to? That's, that's what Paul spent chapters 1 through 3 defining and explaining. And so now, chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of that calling. And so it's not just enough to rest in the fact that they're saved. Paul says, yes, yes, you, you've been saved, you've been called, but, but now walk worthy of that calling. Since you're saved, right, your walk is going to be different. So I urge you, as a prisoner of the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so the first question I ask there just from verse 1 is, who has been called? Who's been called according to Paul here in verse 1? If, if the command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called, who is included in this calling? And the point here is this calling is for all the Christians, all those who have been called. So, so this exhortation is for every Christian. Every Christian there in Ephesus, every Christian here in this room. If you're a Christian, this text speaks directly to you. If you're called, you are exhorted by God himself to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so what kind of calling is this? What's the extent of this calling? What's the nature of this exhortation? What what is Paul saying? 
What spheres of my life do I have to walk in a certain way? Is Paul saying, okay, well, when you come to church, live a certain way. When you're around your parents or your pastor or your Christian friends, then you should walk worthy of the calling. Is that how Paul views this call? Can it be compartmentalized to this side and that side? No, that's not the point. This call is not limited in any way. If you have the NIV, it comes across in the translation. The NIV reads, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And that, that's, that's how we implicitly read that, right? A walk, walk worthy of the calling. That's, that's a comprehensive call. So if you're called, part of your Christian identity is, is that I'm going to walk in a certain way. I'm going to live a certain way. And so living the way that Paul's going to explain in verses 2 through 3 extends to all of one's life. You can't escape your identity. If you're a Christian, that is your identity no matter where you go, no matter who you're around, no matter what you're doing. And so being a Christian affects how one's live. One commentator says, an admonition of this kind is, far, is more far-reaching than a list of detailed rules. It affects areas of life for which it might be difficult to frame rules. It, it's, it's just an, an identity. It's a life. I walk in a certain way because I've been called. And so Paul commands them, walk worthy of your calling. Then in verse 2, he's going to transition to how. So what does this walk look like? How, how do we do this? So look there in verse 2 and 3. First there in verse 2, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's right there in verse 2. That's, that's the how. That's what worthy walking looks like. Humility and gentleness. Patience, bearing with one another in love. Now notice all of these descriptors, they're, they're all attributes that are to characterize our walking. So walk worthy, here's how. With humility and gentleness and patience and, and love. And so first, we, we, can't, we can't miss the fact that in this command, in this exhortation, Paul assumes something. He's assuming that the Christian life, that the walking worthy of your calling is involving others. Did you notice that? So, so if I'm going to be humble and gentle and patient, if I'm going to bear with others, I have to be with others, right? So, so the assumption is that involves others. All of these things require others to be expressed or to, to be displayed. And so I, I'm not humble, right? I, I could sit in my room all day in my office and think that I'm the most humble person in the world, but it's not going to show itself until someone challenges that, right? So I'm not humble unless it's displayed in my interactions with others. I'm not gentle unless it's displayed in my relationship with others. I'm not patient until it's displayed in my relationship with others. I mean, if you have kids or if you're married, you know, I mean, if you're single here, let me tell you, you may think you're godly, but wait till you're married. Right? And then if you're married without kids, you may think you're godly, wait till you have kids. Relationships with others, especially those closest to you, just have a way of exposing you. And that's good. Because it's there whether it's exposed or not, right? But, but Paul is saying, you walk this way and you do this with others in a context of a community. And so Christians who walk worthy of their calling do so with humility and gentleness and patience. I mean, Paul's talking here about, about mutual relationships among Christians. Now, certainly it extends to those outside the church, Right, so, so Christians, right, if this is how we walk, this is our identity, it extends to those outside the church. But Paul here is talking about the, the, the context of the local church, the, the local gathering. 
He's talking about life within the body. And so God's calling, if, if you're called, if you're a Christian, God's calling is not to a private relationship with him. Right? He, he's calling you to a life in community with other believers. And so walking worthy of a calling necessarily involves living with others. And so maybe some of you, that should be your application, just walk away from here saying, okay, how am I going to walk with others? What's, what's one small step I can make? Well, another thing that this manner of walking assumes is that there are, there are enemies of the Christian walk. There's enemies, there's things that would prohibit you from walking worthy or walking in the manner that is fitting with your calling. And according to these that he lists out, it seems that the root of many of the the enemies of our walk as Christians is ourselves. It's pride, it's our ego, right? God's work in the life of Christians is always an attack on the ego, and so, so a lot of times, it's not anything outside that, that's my biggest enemy in terms of walking the Christian life. It, it's not my spouse. It's not my neighbor. It's not the world. It's not even Satan himself. Most of the time, it's my own self, my flesh. And so it shouldn't surprise us right, that Paul says to Christians, walk worthy of your calling. And, and to do this, you have to cultivate humility, gentleness, patience, all things that scream contrary to self. All these characteristics, right? You can't be all about yourself and be humble. You can't be all about yourself and gentle. You can't be all about yourself and patient. You can't be all about yourself and bear with others in love. And so Christians are called to a selfless walk. And it shouldn't surprise us, this this manner of walking, right? This is the way that Jesus walked, isn't it? And if you think about who fits this category, who fits this description, Hopefully there are people in this church that fit it, but but no one's going to fit it better than Jesus himself. Is there anyone more humble than our Lord? Anyone more gentle, more patient, more forbearing than Christ? I mean, this was Paul's point in Philippians 2. He's going to encourage the Philippians. He says, "Put, put put the interests of others ahead of yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. And he would point to Christ as the prime example of that. He says, here's humility 101. Jesus though equal with God, emptied himself and became obedient to the point of flesh. He, he took on human flesh and he obeyed the Father. He didn't consider his state something to be utilized or taken advantage of. No, he, he counted all loss and he served and gave himself. Jesus was the motto. And not only did Jesus set this pattern, but, but also these characteristics, they, they should sound familiar because the Spirit of Christ himself gives fruit that, that matches these things. This is what the Spirit is given to us to do. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Humility, gentleness, patience, love, right? These are things that we're called to, and these are things that that Christian maturity shows. Evidence of Christian maturity is seen in the presence and continued increase of these spiritual fruits. Every Christian is called to show these characteristics on ever-increasing display, Christians live lives that are characterized by Christ-likeness. And so if you're called, you're going to walk different. You're going to walk worthy of the calling, which means walking like Jesus did. Walking empowered by His Spirit. And so to think that the Christian can live a life that's dominated by selfishness or impatience or jealousy or anger, anger, that's just contrary to the clear biblical teaching. I mean, I I hear the argument sometimes, well, they're just old, they're just grumpy, just... let it go. That's not an excuse. 
You can't be grumpy just because you're old if you're a Christian. (laughs) That's the point here. The call to follow Christ is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It's all of life, all of life. Until the day the Lord calls you home, right? You are to be displaying these fruits of the Spirit. It's a walk. Every Christian biography, no matter who you are or or how long you've been a Christian, every Christian biography at its most basic level is you once were dead, but now you're alive. And being alive changes everything. And so Paul here says, walk worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, certainly Paul does not teach. I'm not saying that Christians do not sin. That's not biblical. Christian, as long as you're on this earth, you will struggle with sin. So he's not teaching you don't sin, but he is teaching that a life worthy of our calling is a journey away from sin and away from self, not towards it. Now notice one more thing that Paul says here in verse 3. So verse 2, he says, is how you're to walk. Then verse 3, he continues, eager to maintain the spirit or the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So not only are you to walk with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, you're also to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the connection between verse 2 and 3 is pretty clear. So, so only when every individual is committed to walk with humility and gentleness and being patient with one another, only when that happens can unity be maintained. When any one individual is not committed to, to pursuing these things, the prospect of unity and peace are disrupted. And I would say impossible. And so as, as individuals pursue this, right, by pursuing them, that shows that they're eager to maintain unity. And so walking worthy means being eager to maintain unity. And so, and so this call here, other translations, I think, get this, capture this idea a little better. Paul's point here, so if you have the NIV, your verse 3 reads this way, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Or if you have the NASB, Paul says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or if you have the King James, you have endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So instead of simply saying, hey, be eager to do this, like the SV translates, right? if I'm eager to do something, it's like, okay, if it, if it shows itself up, then I'll, I'll jump on it, right? I think Paul here is saying, do all that you can do. Be diligent, pursue this endeavor, strive to maintain this unity. Paul is saying this unity is something that has to be actively maintained. And so Christians have to work together to maintain this unity. But did you notice that word maintained? It's something that has to be maintained. So so this unity that Christians are called to, this peace, is something that Christians are called to maintain. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us that we did not create it. It's been created and established already. We maintain it. It's not something that we manufacture. So we as a church can't say, hey, we've got to just create the spirit of unity. No, if we're a church, unity is already existent among us. It's already been done. This is the whole point of the end of chapter 2 in Ephesians and into chapter 3. Paul's point was, in the gospel of Christ, there is one new man. Jew and Gentile have been reconciled. There's one new body that has been created through Christ Jesus. Paul would say, Jesus is our peace. It's been done. So Christians, maintain it. Jesus gave his life for it. Now, now, now just maintain it. 
the church's unity is described as the unity of the Spirit, which signifies a unity that God's Spirit creates, and therefore not the reader's own achievement. Yet, they are exhorted urgently to maintain it. The Ephesians and all Christians have been united by the Spirit, and that union is expressed or displayed through peace. Do you know that? Their peace here, the bond of peace. This is how unity is expressed. Paul is calling all Christians, he's calling every member of every local church, he's calling every member of this local church to bend every effort in order to maintain our oneness. I love that picture, to bend every effort in order to maintain our oneness. And so as a church, right, we're united in the gospel of Christ. We are united, and as we walk, as we live as a church, our duty, our obligation is to maintain that unity. So if we lose that unity, we have lost Christ himself. So we're committed. We're, we're to commit ourselves to oneness, to unity. That's the call. That's the walk. And so walking worthy of our calling means walking in such a way that the oneness of this local body is my priority, is your priority. And so the first application, first point of application that I'll make here is, is that all Christians are called to maintain the unity of the body. All Christians are called to maintain the unity of the body. If you're not a member here, if you're a member of another church, right, uh, make it applicable to where you are. But if you're a member here, you are called to maintain the unity of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. If you're a member, that's an obligation that you have. Every local church, listen to this, every local church sends a message or every local church says something. It says either we're united or it says we're divided. Right? So, so our church is, is speaking one of those two messages. And if a local church is proclaiming that we are divided, for that to be the, the testimony, the message of a local church of Christ is for that local church to cease being a church that is founded upon Christ. Unity is no small matter for the church of Christ. A church that is divided is a church that sends an anti-gospel message. And that message is sent all over, the, all over Hampton, isn't it? When you have bickering and infighting, right? The watching world says, ha, anti-gospel. Right? Their faith can't even unite them. Every Christian is called to maintain the unity of his or her local body. Division says we are not one. When Jesus says, I died to be your peace, he says, I died to make you one. I died to tear down hostility and to make one body. It's so because of what Christ has done, his church is united. Pursuing unity and maintaining unity is not optional. It is essential. It is required. And the way that Paul would have us do this, the way that we maintain unity of this local body, is for each member of this local body to strive for the development and growth of the Christ-like character in verse 2 and 3. And so we as individuals strive for these characteristics that then lead to a peaceful, united body. And so if, so if upon hearing me say that all Christians are called to maintain the union of the body, you immediately think that someone else needs to do that, you're missing the point. And you say, oh, I know, who needs to, I, know, I know who needs to hear this sermon. I'm not saying you shouldn't eventually get there, but if that's the first place you go, you're missing the point. It's your calling before it's anyone else's calling. And you 
need to hear this. You need to know that you have room to grow in these things. Some of us more than others, but we all need to grow. We're all in process. And so we ought not be surprised when we trend towards division, right? When we find ourselves being tempted to be frustrated or irritated or impatient or mad at others in our body, that's the natural drift. And if we don't maintain unity, that's where we're headed. And we head that way, we're not going towards Christ. That's why we must strive to maintain unity. If unity came naturally, Paul wouldn't have to exhort these Christians towards it. And so the way this text addresses us is simply by forcing us to examine ourselves. And so just, just ask yourself, in what ways am I eagerly maintaining unity in this body? Consider that this week. What, what are ways that I'm doing this? Or maybe you should ask, in what ways am I contributing to disunity among this body? Is, is there anything I'm doing? Is there some way I've talked about someone, an attitude I've, I've had? Is there anything that I'm doing that, that's contributing to disunity? And if you're aware of something, address it. Repent of it. And so some questions. Am I quick to get angry? Am I generally proud or arrogant? Am I impatient with others? Am I lacking in, in long-suffering? Right? All of these things, if we're honest, we all struggle with all of them to a certain degree. But all of these things destroy, or at least they have the great potential to destroy the unity of the church. And so we as members, as Christians, are called to walk worthy of our calling. So we cultivate humility. We pursue gentleness, and, and we labor to bear with one another in love. And so we, we maintain unity. And we do so, broadly speaking, in response to what God's already done for us. We do so because God's great power is at work within us through His Spirit. And so all Christians are called to maintain unity of the body. And that happens corporately when we pursue it individually. And so that's your calling here this morning. If you're a Christian, you're part of this body. Well, then finally, verses 4 through 6, Paul gives the basis for this unity, or the motivation for this unity. Verses 4 through 6, he answers the why question. So look there in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so if you didn't know that oneness was the priority before, now you do. You just hear that in verses 4 through 6, the, the repetition. When, it, when an author says the same word seven times over, over a matter of three short verses, he's trying to get your attention. Seven times there's one body, one spirit. You're called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That's his point. There's, there's one. There's unity. Paul's point, his main point, is that there is a oneness that characterizes the people of God. So we don't have to go into specifics of all seven of these, these things to understand. Right, think about the picture that this list paints. Think about the unity that this picture portrays. All seven of these things that he lists here in verses 4, 5, and 6, all seven of them are shared by every Christian of every time. The list reminds us that there's fundamental unities upon which the Christian faith and life is based. And so every Christian that's been called shares in these things. This means, in one sense, becoming a Christian eliminates your right to privacy. 
It eliminates your right to privacy. It alters the way you understand your individualism. That's what he's saying. There's one that characterizes all. So what I mean is this. Being a Christian means you don't have a unique claim on the Spirit. Being a Christian means you don't have an individual hope that is unique to yourself. Being a Christian means you don't have a special Lord. Being a Christian means you don't have a personalized statement of faith. Being a Christian means you don't, don't have a unique one-of-a-kind baptism. Being a Christian means that in all these things, you have exactly what every other Christian has. There's a oneness that is shared among all Christians who are called. Christians must maintain the unity of the Spirit because everything they hold of any significance, they hold with other people. Christianity is a shared faith. No separate or merely individual faith exists. Nor is there any different salvation. It is one. This unity, these seven things, Paul says, you ought to be unified and ought to maintain unity because you are one. Because you share in all of these most important things, all these foundational things. And did you notice that how Paul organized these things? They're organized around the Trinity itself. Did you notice that? Paul did this back in chapter 1. But here, Paul orders this section, these, these two, three verses, around the Trinity, though he lists them in reverse order. So notice, he just, he's just come off describing the necessity of unity within the church. And so, again, he says there's one body, and just coming off the, the, the one church, he says there's one body, but then he quickly goes on to one spirit. So there's first, third, first in the list, third in traditional formula, third person of the Trinity there, the spirit. And the Spirit is the one by which we're included into the one body. So there's one body, and we're made one body by the one Spirit. Especially think about the, the discussion of Jew-Gentile in the book of Acts, in Acts 15. Right? Peter says they receive the Spirit. They're part of us. They don't have to be circumcised. There's one Spirit who's been given to Jew and Gentile. And the Spirit is the one who unites the body. There's one hope. There's one hope, Paul says. Then from the Spirit, he moves on second person of the Trinity. There's one Lord. There's one Lord. This, this is Jesus. It's a reference to, to Jesus himself, which, interestingly to note, in the Old Testament, Lord was of, of Yahweh himself. New Testament, Paul attributes Jesus. He, he gives that title to Jesus. And that's one of, the, one of the arguments for the divinity of Jesus. Paul calls him and worships him as Yahweh of the Old Testament. And but here's, here's Jesus. He's the only Lord. He's the only Christ. And with the one Lord, there's one faith and one baptism. And so why faith and baptism after Jesus? Right? Because Christian faith and Christian baptism cannot be separated from Jesus. And so every Christian, by nature of their identity, has put their faith in Jesus and has been baptized into Jesus. So faith and baptism are Christian and unifying because they both point to the one Lord. And then the culmination of, of, this, of this refrain, finally there in verse 6, there's one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Again, I think this is the, the, the point he hit previously, where, where God is the Father of all. There, there's a universal rule. And so Paul here says Christians not only share in the same spirit, not only participate in the same Lord, but also worship the one God and Father of all. And so it's a confession of God's great power and sovereignty and his presence throughout all of creation. He is the God over all. 
The one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And these Ephesians, Paul says, are called to walk in unity because the reality is they are united in their worship of the triune God. They worship the one, one Father, one Son, and one Spirit. And they're united. And their lives ought to be characterized by that oneness. Well, the last point of application that, that I'll, I'll end with, again, hopefully hear the main point, that Christians are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That calling is unified. But the final application is that Christian unity is not unity at any price. So yes, we are called to unity, but that unity is not at any price. And that's because here in verses 4 through 6, Paul defines the unity of all Christians, or, or he, he lays out the boundaries within which Christian unity takes place. And so here in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul is saying, yes, we're called to be united, and we're united because of these core truths that we confess. These seven aspects of, of this unity mentioned, they're all some way, shape, or form connected to the gospel, which is why all Christian unity is determined by one's holding to the gospel. And so Christian unity, right, it comes with boundaries so that if someone holds to a different God, like Allah, there's no unity there. So we don't say, oh, I know, it's, all this, it's a different word, but it's all the same God. No. There is defined and described, marked out unity. And so unity is around the one Father, the one Son, the one Spirit, the, the, the God that's laid out, presented in the Scriptures. And so if someone holds to a God that it is contrary to the biblical testimony, there is not unity. There's no call for unity there. If someone professes a different Christ than is presented in the Scriptures, the Christ of Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses or other cults, there is not unity there. There is not fellowship with the same Christ because we hold to vastly different Christs. No matter what they say, their Christ is not the Christ of the Scriptures. And so we're not called to be united with them. We're called to evangelize them and share the gospel with them. And we do so in love, but we don't, we don't pursue unity at any price. Christian unity is not at any price. So we don't throw the distinctiveness of the Christian faith out the window for the sake of unity. There are distinctives. We hold fast to the teachings of Scripture. We hold, hold fast to the one faith that has been delivered to the saints that God's people have held to for all of its existence. There's one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father over all. And as we do so, as we hold fast to these things that we are united in, our oneness becomes clear and our unity is put on display for all to see. Let's pray as we close.